And welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry on today's Transfer Podcast. Duncan Castles takes us inside his scoop that seven Manchester United players are now considering their futures at the club. We bring you an update on Manchester City's pursuit of a defensive midfielder as a long-term replacement for Fernandinho. And we look at the lack of competition in the top five leagues and ask if a European Super League is now inevitable. Okay, well, we're going to start with a story that was broken yesterday by Mr. Duncan Castles of this parish in the Sunday Times regarding seven Manchester United players who are now considering their future for next season. And it's some big names too, no fringe players in there. This is the players that you would expect to be um, perhaps hanging around at Manchester United under a new boss with uh, so much uh, potential to turn the club around. Duncan, what does this mean for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Ed Woodward and the project at Manchester United over the coming years? Well, look, we've had a lot of discussion in the last few weeks about Manchester United's strategy going into next season and the acceptance that they have to um, make significant changes to the squad. Um, there has been briefing from the club that uh, Ed Woodward and the Glazers are, are, want to invest heavily in, in Solskjaer uh, and in his squad and his ideas for the team. Um, it's the, the idea has been floated that it could be a record uh, spend in a transfer window for Manchester United. Um, over £200 million potentially uh, on transfer fees alone. Um, and the sense has been, look, we're going we're gonna to fix the problems. We're going to give them a squad that's capable of competing for the title and, uh, and, and competing for the Champions League. And it's been very much about um, moving out some players that they don't want anymore and, and then buying uh, young, uh, exciting talents who they think uh, can turn into the top players in in English and European football down the line. This is kind of the other side of, of what's happening at Manchester United, is what I reported in the Sunday Times. It's, uh, it's talking about, uh, I call them the, the sullen seven. And, and it's the sense that they've actually got to look to hold on to players who are key operatives in their squad, uh, as well as bring in new players to supplement them. And just going through, um, you know, key figures and, and totalling up the number of key figures in that squad who are considering whether now is the time to leave Manchester United um, and looking at options elsewhere. Um, and, and I think also affected by the idea that Manchester United might not be in Champions League next season. They're, you know, whether they have that battle to finish in the top four um, or have to win the Champions League to get their place there. And, and it's quite a... It's quite an incredible list. Um, there's Paul Pogba, obviously, who has stated his interest in moving to Real Madrid and who um, Real Madrid's manager said he would like to have at the club. So there you've got the most expensive signing in Manchester United's history. Uh, Juan Mata, who's out of contract and in, in contract discussions with Barcelona, amongst others. 
um, who was at one point Manchester United's record signing. Um, you've got their best player, um, best goalkeeper in the Premier League for five of the last six years, David De Gea. You've got their most expensive defender, Eric Bailly, who's unhappy with his uh, status in the squad and um, considering options elsewhere and, and has, has attracted interest from significant clubs such as Tottenham and Arsenal. Um, you've got their best paid player, Alexis Sanchez, and, and this is probably the only one of the seven that United would definitely like to leave if they could find someone to take his, his wages on. And then you've got their most expensive um, forward, Romelu Lukaku, who has been unhappy for some time about his status in the team and the fact that he lost his, his place as starting centre-forward to Marcus Rashford. Um, and uh, doesn't have any problems with Solskjaer, but has been from that point on has been thinking, um, if I am not uh, going to be a guaranteed starter in this team next season, because the manager prefers to play other players in these positions, then I need to look at uh, my options elsewhere. And his new agent... Um, gave an interview on Friday expressing basically that, saying that uh, they'll assess their future at the end of the season and making it very pointedly clear that Serie A um, was an option for Lukaku. And then finally, you have Ander Herrera, who, as we um, we broke on the, the podcast last week, has already agreed a pre-contract with Paris Saint-Germain and will be going. And um, while he doesn't qualify in any of those sort of record signing categories or highest paid player, he has recently been described by Solskjaer as vital to his team. So it's, it's quite a list. Um, and, you know, it, it underlines that there's a lot more to do about improving this squad than just uh, bringing new players in. They have to secure their top players um, before or at least at the same time as they as they bring new players in and, and makes the squad planning much harder than it would seem, um, I think, from the outside. And I, I think, uh, apparently, as it would, than it would seem from the inside, because I don't think Manchester United have been aware of just uh, the scale of the problem they have in terms of um, uncertainty about whether Manchester United play, is the right place to further sporting careers amongst key players who are already at the team. I think this has um, uh, more than a slight whiff of the uh, morning after night before about it, the um, natural enthusiasm uh, and almost giddiness which um, enveloped Manchester United as a football club and certainly the dressing room um, in the first few weeks of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's interim reign um, has all but evaporated. Uh, and in that time, we saw almost every single player give interviews about we want all to get a job because he's great and he's brilliant and we all love him. And since then, three defeats in four games has brought reality very much back home uh, to Manchester United about how much work there does have to be done in terms of restructuring the squad. It's a squad which has proven itself to not be capable to compete for the Premier League title. Um, they've got a very, very difficult task in uh, overcoming Barcelona in Champions League quarterfinal for the next two weeks. And um, yeah, they've got they've got a huge amount of work on, and it's about strategy now more than anything, because there are players in that sullen seven that, that Duncan has has listed, who they probably could either afford or cannot avoid losing. I.e. Herrera, Mata, who are out of contract, who make their own decisions. 
Um, Bai, who has been very inconsistent. Sanchez, who we know is just a bad smell in the dressing room. Lukaku has, again, failed to really um, reproduce the kind of goal-scoring form at a consistent level for Manchester United that he has uh, done at Everton and even uh, maybe even more impressively uh, in loan moves when he was at Chelsea. So for Solskjaer, Ed Woodward and a potential new director of football who it's been stated they want to have in place for the start of next season. Um, their biggest problems are obviously trying to convince De Gea and Pogba to stay. Uh, that's the priority. And other than that, is looking at the other five, uh, as Duncan said, trying to move Sanchez out because he's the one that unanimously needs to go. Uh, with regards to the other ones, well, shopping for football players isn't quite as straightforward or easy as some people might think it is. Um, not only is it extremely expensive with regards to transfer fee, agent's fee, and then obviously the contract itself, but it's convincing players that they're coming to a club that has ambition, that can fulfil their personal ambition in the team environment, and ultimately bring them sporting success. Now, that's not something Manchester can guarantee anyone right now. And I suspect what they need, and this you know, would be, if you like, Solskjaer's dream scenario, is some kind of catalyzing incident or signing which convinces the other players at the club to stay, uh, as well as other players who are considering joining and they're considering signing to come. Now, that could be progress beyond Barcelona in the Champions League and possibly even into the final and beyond, who knows. Or it could be that if United are shrewd, which they haven't been, we have to you know say that in the transfer market, but if they are shrewd and they are strategic, they have already got a big, you know, I won't say starting, but a very significant signing in the pipeline, ready to unveil at the end of the season and make a statement, therefore, saying this is why you want to come play for Manchester United because you will be playing a team with ambition, you will be playing a team which has a chance of winning titles, etc., etc. And, uh, and, and that is your, your dream kind of scenario with regards to how you turn a club's fortunes around um, in terms of making them relevant again. However, flip side of that is, lose Mata Herrera, potentially lose De Gea, which looks likely, potentially lose Pogba, or at least get yourself involved in a prolonged transfer wrangle with Real Madrid, which United fans have been frustrated with before with regards to um, Cristiano Ronaldo's move, which was delayed a year until after the 2008 um, European uh, cup success. He then moved in 2009 to Real Madrid um, after Fergie famously said, "I wouldn't sell that club a virus." Um, now, yeah, I, so I think there are, there are, there's a, these are contesting times for Manchester United with regards to what they do because just look up above them. They've got Liverpool and Manchester City in far superior uh, shape with regards to depth of squad, um, first eleven. Um, ability to, to compete on all fronts as well as Manchester City continue to show um, despite Pep's um, protestations that a quadruple is impossible. And um, and that's their noisy neighbours. So it, this is a major, major problem. And one probably, uh, I, I hope, sorry, that Solskjaer had at least thought about, but certainly one that they shouldn't be in. They shouldn't be in this state. There should be more strategic thinking ahead of this. Um, they shouldn't be in contract negotiations at the 13th hour, um, or 11th hour, I should say, with uh, with Mata and Herrera. Those decisions should be made long ago, and even Pogba, who's two years out of contract this summer. So, yeah, 
big, big summer um, for United and for Woodward and whoever the director of football is going to be. Just say on, on Lukaku, in terms of his scoring, um, he was the highest scorer for Manchester United last season and he is the leading scorer again for them this season. And his uh, goal per minute ratio is better uh, than any of the other forwards in the team. It's a goal every 170 minutes. Um, and better than anyone apart from, uh, interestingly enough, Marouane Fellaini, who has already gone. Um, so I think, I mean, it hasn't been a good season for Lukaku. He struggled at the start of it. There were a number of reasons for that. Um, um, don't, both sorry. Both I, up. I don't think, um, even though they're mates, I doubt very much that Lukaku will be boasting that he's ahead of Fellaini. On <laughs> goals per minute ratio. <laughs> no, no. But look, the, the point on Lukaku is he's he still delivered the goals despite not being first choice under Solskjaer, despite um, struggling after the World Cup with fitness and weight. And I think there were some personal issues in the background that uh, um, affected his focus in the early part of the season. So. Um, he would be a difficult. You'd have to be very clever, a very um, uh, certain that you don't want that player anymore as part of your squad before you let him go to uh, Syria uh, in the summer, because you've decided that Marcus Rashford, whose um, shots on target ratio still stands at slightly over fifty percent, um, despite having been moved to that centre forward position, is the is the man who's going to lead your attack and and uh, help you win a. Premier League title. Well, you say that about Lukaku, Duncan, but interestingly, you know, the negotiations with Marcus Rashford's representatives have been ongoing as well with regards to tying him down and a new long-term contract. So it's a bit of a state, really, when you think that Lukaku's considering his future. Rashford clearly hasn't yet been satisfied with either the offer he's been made or indeed what is in prospects for Manchester United in the next one, two, three years in which he'd be signing up for. Um, like that's a, again, is a real, real problem because goals, as we know, are the hardest to buy um, in elite level football. And at the moment, you know, United need goals. They, they haven't had enough this season, clearly. Otherwise, they'd be in a much better position challenging. So, yeah, um, Rashford's situation also needs to be addressed. Okay, well, we always like to deliver news on the Transfer Window podcast. We've got a pretty good ratio for doing so. And Duncan, I hear you have some about Manchester City for next season. Yeah, it's more of an update of where Manchester City are in terms of uh, filling their key um, recruitment priority for the for the summer window, which is... Uh, a midfielder capable of taking on the Fernandinho role, uh, capable of sharing duties with the Brazilian next season and um, and also playing elsewhere in the midfield, uh, giving basically giving Guardiola uh, a second option in that key position in front of the defence. Um, they have they're, they're, they feel they're adv- uh, quite far advanced in securing the player. One of the the major candidates is Rodri at Atletico Madrid. The advantage of um, the Spain in, that Spain international is that he has a, a defined buyout clause, um, which is accessible for for Manchester City. Um, he's interested in coming. Uh, they rate him highly. Guardiola likes him a lot, and he looks at present to be a better bet than, for example, Ruben Neves, who's another player in that position that they, they've 
um, pursued for a long time. They know Neves can do do it in the Premier League, but the problem with Neves is that uh, Wolves are in no need of money and uh, value him at over 100 million. Um, And that is significantly more than they would have to pay to get uh, Rodri from Atletico. Rodri's an interesting one because he is uh, one of a number of um, holding midfielders that uh, Jose Mourinho recommended to Manchester United uh, signing. Um, And he tried to push him on their transfer list actually just before um, Atletico came in and signed him. Um, But basically, I think Atletico got became aware that United were interested in the player and moved quickly to get a deal done while he was uh, still cheap and available and he's been a a huge success for them. Um, So uh, that's where Manchester City are in that area of the team and I think there's a reasonable chance we'll see that signing being completed before the end of the summer. I think it's very uh, likely, Duncan, um, having spoken to sources at Manchester City, I'm told there have been several conversations with the players' representatives. The player has indicated um, his desire to go to Manchester City. Um, he sees that as an exciting project for him. He's only, he's only 22, 23 this summer. Um, very impressively made a mark on Atletico Madrid this season, playing 40 matches in all, uh, notably 27 in La Liga and eight in the Champions League. Um, his role and his discipline is something which is key um, <clears throat> he doesn't, for a young man, get overexcited and uh, go out of position. Uh, he, I think, almost uh, thrives in his role as a, as a player who breaks up offensive play in either the middle third or indeed the his own final third of the, uh, the pitch. And I think City are very keen on for the reason that, that he shows that tactical discipline already for a young man. Um, also very um, uh, impressive physically, as Fernandinho is, but mobile. Um, and also, he has that top-level experience. You know, 20, I'd say 27 La Liga appearances, 8 in the Champions League. You can't imagine him not coming and hitting the ground running uh, at, at City and therefore being able to um, to be a very effective player for them. And also, just look at the players that he's competing against. I mean, Thomas Partey is one of my favourite players of uh, last season. And the Atletico Madrid midfield, albeit he can be a bit more offensive, but um, you know he's Rodri for players come in has done exceptionally well, and I think as well City are going to be advantaged by the fact that there's a little bit of discord um, at Atletico now. There, I think there's some feeling both uh, at the club and possibly certainly in the press that the Simeone era is getting towards a point where maybe it's just gone on a bit too long, and. Um, for Rodri getting out of that before things start to uh, dilapidate or indeed break up further would be a, a good move. Yeah, he's just, I mean, he's just 22 years old. Um, they completed the deal with Villarreal last summer um, for around 20 million initial fees, so they make a, a big profit on it. But I think one of, the, one of the key things is his height. You know, he's uh, 1 metre 91. Um, we know that Manchester City are. Uh, short on players of stature um, and it's something that that Guardiola likes to have um, one or two extra in there to compensate for having to play so many smaller players, uh, mobile players in his attack Um, and it's going to strengthen me even further. I think what was quite impressive for me in the way that City um, played Brighton in the FA Cup semi-final was just how strong 
they were in central defence uh, in terms of um, clearing away uh, set pieces, which is Brighton's you know main attacking threat. Um, uh, Emeric Laporte and Otamendi um, very uh, influential in that game in terms of of, of stopping. Um, Brighton from having good chances from set pieces and if they're able to add another um, standard player so Rodri would be, you'd expect to start a lot of their games next season in that height range that's only going to strengthen them in the Premier League Well, in Europe's top five leagues, the big clubs in each one lead the way and significantly with the exception of England Of course, in the Premier League, Liverpool and Manchester City are duking it out for top spot with very little between them. But in France, PSG are storming away with the league. In Italy, Juventus, in Spain, Barcelona and in Germany, Bayern Munich have come back after Dortmund took an early lead in the league and are now storming clear. They just won 4-0 at the weekend. Ian, are we in a situation now where this polarisation between the truly big clubs and the rest in every league is becoming more and more stark in a way that continues to underline the case for further revamping of the Champions League and potentially a European Super League in the future? First of all, Johnny, I've got to congratulate you on a, a Dr Duncan Castle's um, intro question as long as a quick fire round. Um, yeah. <laughs> got there in <laughs> the end. Exactly, you did indeed. You did indeed. But yeah, you, you you make a very good point. Um, there seems to be a cyclical nature in the top five leagues in in Europe, whereby a club dominates, um, and then you get a, a a real title race, maybe one or two years in a row because of um, maybe freak of nature or decent investment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, at this weekend, both Juventus and PSG could have won the league in early April. Um, in fact, Juventus missed uh, that opportunity to be the, the quickest ever uh, Scudetto um, when they drew at the weekend and, and are now 20 points clear of Napoli. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain, uh, never in doubt, they, they seem to do this every season anyway. Um, and then Barcelona, I think, you know, it's significant in their late Tunovic against Atletico, effectively sealing their title. And now, the, the advantage, of course, if you want to call it that, that gives um, certainly Juventus and Barcelona, is that they go into quarter-finals, not semis, quarter-finals in the Champions League, knowing that they can actually rest players for in, in league games because the title's effectively tied up. Um, and that gives them an advantage against other clubs like Tottenham, Manchester City and Liverpool, who, of course, um, are all competing either for the league title or indeed the right to be Champions League uh, contenders uh, and being the competition next season, so they're still trying to juggle the high pressure of playing Premier League matches, every one of which is effectively a must-win game, with Champions League matches which take a lot out of uh, your team and your squad, both uh, physically and mentally, because of the nature of um, you know the, winning that competition, or the possibility of getting to the semi-finals, final, etc., etc. So. There is um, there's definitely a polarisation with regards to um, what the competition is like. I said Italy and, and uh, France are the two ob- most obvious in terms of lack of competition. Bayern Munich um, have created a Lazarus-like resurrection against Dortmund, who were uh, nine points clear at one point in the Bundesliga. But as you said, Johnny came back and gave them a good uh, thumping at the weekend. Um, so what this has in terms of knock-on effect 
lots of com- uh, conversations at uh, between UEFA and the European Club Association two weeks ago with regards to revamping the Champions League. The initial um, proposal was to move Champions League games to weekends and therefore return um, domestic league matches to midweek. But they want to stave off the possibility of um, the big clubs going rogue and starting their own, um, effectively, European Super League. But the way things are just now with Juventus and PSG, you'd have to say that such a league would be much more um, attractive to them and their fans because they clearly aren't getting the kind of competition to challenge them in their domestic leagues as they currently are uh, would like, or I guess maybe not like, as they would get if they were in a European Super League. So there are consequences for this. Um, but at the same time, um, we have seen this kind of trend before. And what the reaction to it from UEFA has always been to try and broker a deal uh, which makes the big clubs um, easier to progress to the latter stages of the Champions League, therefore get more financial um reward for doing so and therefore hold the whole sort of competitive nature of um, the central competition uh, together but with football finance changing the way it has especially when you have nation state ownership of clubs like PSG and Manchester City um, um, by Middle Eastern um, principalities then I think Duncan we are going to have to be asking different questions in the coming sort of years and months with regards to um, where this leaves us? Yeah, I th- look, I think it, it's kind of been a, a self-destructive process in the sense that there, there's always been pressure from the top clubs in Europe to get as much money out of their domestic leagues and out of um, European competition as possible. And there's been a tension between uh, you know, a loose confederation of the biggest clubs in Europe and UEFA to extract more cash from the Champions League for those top clubs to secure the qualification. And we've seen things like um, it, it being more guaranteed places being given to the big leagues uh, consistently down the years, but also more television money being given to the top teams consistently. Um, uh, most recent change has been to um, increase uh, vary the, the payments for Champions League appearances in a given season according to the club's track record in past seasons, which essentially means that Real Madrid get more money um, than they would have got because they have uh, been the most successful team in the Champions years. Now, if you keep doing that, you obviously increase the chances of getting this kind of competitive imbalance because you give Juventus, you give Real Madrid, you give Barcelona, you give Bayern Munich, you give Paris Saint-Germain a lot more money, a lot more of the Champions League pie to themselves and and give them a a much bigger advantage over the domestic rivals. If you look at Paris Saint-Germain's latest financial figures, they have a revenue of over 500 million. Now, most of that revenue is financial doping, artificial from Qatar. But the problem that the French League has is their revenue is three times that of the second biggest club in France, uh, Olympic Lyonnais. Um, and if you have a three times revenue advantage over your um, biggest rival, the guys who, who should be pushing you for the title, then it's very hard to see um, this kind of early victory uh, and, and almost guaranteed victories of the domestic title uh, disappearing. You have to make a, basically make a complete mess 
of your own campaign to give the competition a chance, which uh, Bayern Munich tried to do this season, but um, I've still recovered at a point where you know you've got uh, still a, a decent number of games left to play, but it looks pretty much like they're going to to win the title regardless in, in Germany. Um, so UEFA has a problem, and uh, and the, as you say, the big clubs like the idea of a Super League because they think they can make um, more money from having these glamour uh, games on a more consistent basis. And there is an internal pressure within that ECA the, the, and the elite clubs in the ECA to push for a Super League. It's not, I understand, unanimous. I believe that um, some of the clubs do not see Super League as the way to go. I believe Real Madrid, for example, are opposed to um, the idea of a Super League as it's being proposed by, um, in contrast, Juventus, who are, who are very uh, keen on on that idea. But it's definitely a key matter in the economics and in the political scene in, in Europe. Um, even in the Premier League, which has thrived on having one of the most equitable distributions of um, broadcast revenue of the of all the European leagues and and therefore I think as a result we have this situation where you've got six clubs who um, have the financial wherewithal to realistically compete for the for the title at present even the Premier League has has removed some of that egalitarianism with its new um, broadcast structure in that Previously, the overseas rights were divided absolutely equally between the, the 20 clubs in the Premier League. The, the next deal coming in will see um, that overseas revenue, which is on course to be bigger than the domestic revenue in the next uh, rights deal, um, divided according to performance in the league. So essentially, Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, Chelsea can expect to get more of that overseas revenue and have a bigger advantage over the teams at, at the bottom um, going forward. And I think something that hasn't really been commented on a lot is we've had this, you know, excellent title race between City and Liverpool, and we've had you know two teams at the top getting close to record points totals, and you know an argument that it's the best Premier League ever because of that. It's not really been commented that the bottom half of the division is probably the worst and least competitive it's ever been. So um, Huddersfield went down um, almost the equal, equal earliest relegation of a team in Premier League history. And, uh, and Fulham went down, I think, the week after. So you, you've got two of the relegation places decided with um, many games left to play, which is unusual. And But I think indicative of... Um, the, the bigger, the, the increase in difference between the bottom end of the Premier League and the top end, um, which again has been masked slightly by Watford and, and Wolves doing well in the middle ground. But Watford and Wolves are kind of um, unusual clubs in the sense that one has great funding from China uh, and a very good recruitment policy, and the other has a really good recruitment policy from with the Pozo family um, leveraging uh, a scouting network that's um, that's been successful at recruiting players from all around the world for their clubs um, for well over a decade now. So both are really good in the transfer market, and I think that's the reason why they've they've been able to deliver um, reasonable 
uh, league positions and in Wolves' case, a lot of good results against the, the top six sides. But essentially, we're seeing the Premier League get more polarised as well. It's just the Premier League has an advantage in that, that the polarisation leaves a, a group of top teams who are very competitive between each other. So you get an interesting um, top end of the league off the back of that. How big a factor, Duncan, is the Premier League and its financial power in disrupting uh, the demands or the desire from someone like PSG, say, who are in the French League where they don't have that that level of competition um, to face? I think it's a factor because obviously the the Premier League clubs are less likely to want to sacrifice um, the huge money that they make from their domestic competition for a European Super League. Um, So they... Uh, will want it structured in a way that they can retain uh, Premier League representation and retain the broadcast revenue from the Premier League. But that hasn't stopped them. I, I, you know, we've seen Der Spiegel's stories on um, the kind of the background discussions that these clubs have been having about Super League. That hasn't stopped them from being involved in the discussions and, uh, and being positive towards the general idea. Um, so it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean they're going to be able to. The Premier League will will stop it. I think more of a factor in in stopping this is something like FIFA, who are against the idea um, of a European Super League if they are not involved in it, and are threatening uh, that were clubs to unilaterally um, set up a Super League outside UEFA's auspices, that um, they would remove. Uh, the right of players involved in that Super League to play in, in the World Cup. Um, so that, that's kind of the, 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 the stick with which, which, which FIFA, one of the governing bodies, are trying to uh, keep a lid on this. However, where those European Super League clubs, I think, to go to FIFA and propose that the, the, the Super League was uh, organised by them and FIFA were to have access to the revenues from it, perhaps that, uh, that threat might disappear. Okay, we're going to move on to the quickfire round now. And every Monday we have a heroes and villains section where the guys pick the person they think is most appropriate um, for the awards uh, from the weekend's action. So we're going to go straight away to Duncan. And you've picked out uh, today's hero. Yeah, I think uh, I think the hero has to be the, the outstanding performance um, or match-deciding performance of the FA Cup semi-finals. And that would be uh, Gerard Delfeo's um, sub appearance from the bench for Watford when it, it looked like uh, the semi-final was gone and that Wolves were, were going to play uh, Manchester City um, at, at Wembley again in the final but uh, scored I think you know, a, a, a real a really inspirational goal um, and one of the best uh, one of the best goals I've seen in the Wembley um, semi-final or final for quite some time in terms of creativity and audacity um, to break that game open um, and then went and um, had a, a, a beautiful, um, controlled, confident finish um, uh, where he just managed to pass the ball in an angle past um, Wolves goalkeeper Ruddy um, to, to decide the match. So I think he has to be the, the hero, of, uh, hero of the weekend. And Ian, who's your villain? Well, um, I'm sure all Stoke fans who were laughing when the Paris Saint-Germain bought 
their uh, legendary midfielder Chupamoting will have been laughing also if they saw the footage uh, from <laughs> the weekend's game in Ligue 1 when um, Paris Saint-Germain had the opportunity to go 16 matches, 16 victories in a row at home in the league this season. But not only that, they would clinch Liga as well um, with six weeks to go. And um, for some reason, and please, please search this goal, people. Christopher Nkuku shot is going in. There is no reason for the Motingmeister to get involved. But he does. And what does he do? He jams the ball between his foot and the base of the post, leaving the ball literally on the line while he crosses the line. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't get the goal for crossing the line. Only the ball matters. So he's got to be villain for me. I think just before we go, an honourable mention to villain-assisted referee at Wembley on Saturday evening, uh, which decided that a headbutt and um, pulling down the face of um, Ali Jahankabash by... Um, Kyle Walker was not a red card offence. Therefore, not only um, making a mockery of villain-assisted referee, but also the laws of the game, which uh, insist that when such an offence has been committed, it's an automatic red card. Poor Brighton. My heart bled for you. I know they're your local club. Yeah, you know, we did did, proper good performance, Johnny. Um, But uh, as someone who believes that second is nowhere, now you know. Uh, I will be a little bit stretched and uh, vetched by such situations. The other semi-final, more than made up for it, Duncan. What a game that was. Yeah, I, I think they were both good games to watch, actually. I thought I, I was impressed by the way Brighton um, tried to come back into the match and the, you know, the, the manner in which they played the, the second half. Um, and yeah, the, the second semi-final was a fantastic game of football. Um, and interesting to see whether Watford... Um, can uh, can stop uh, Manchester City winning the the FA Cup and doing a, a double of the of the cups this season. I, I think I think Wolves had the better opportunity to do that. I think they were better set up um, to to beat Manchester City. But let's see if um, Javi Garcia, who's done a fantastic job at Watford, that has to be said, can come up with a plan to um, to win the FA Cup. And we should say as well, very quickly, Johnny, commiserations to um, Raul Jimenez because. His superhero mask celebration probably did deserve to win here over the weekend had uh, had Jerry, Jerry D knock him on and blown him out of the water. With, uh, and I agree with Duncan, one of the most superb goals I have seen. It was You watch the way his foot digs into the turf first so that the ball rises rapidly and curls round. It's just incredible. OK, well, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. But fear not, we will be back on Wednesday to answer your questions. Uh, to continue the debate, you can contact us on Twitter. We have our own transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. And each of us has our accounts. Um, you can get me at Johnny R. McFarlane, Ian at SJ, and Duncan at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Wednesday, thanks for listening.